As we continue our study in 2 Corinthians, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we will be looking at verses 5 through 13. It's printed for you in the, uh, the bulletin. It's on page 964, as far as your pew Bible is concerned. And children, if um, your parents will permit, and they may not permit this, draw a picture of them. Draw a picture of mom and dad, and then write under that picture of mom and dad, if you can spell it, the words, thank you. And we'll explain that later. All right. Second Corinthians <clears throat> chapter two and beginning in verse five. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we should not be unwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. Please illuminate our minds and our hearts that we might hear and be receptive to your truth and be found obedient to your holy purposes, to the glory, honor, and praise of your holy name and for our temporal and eternal blessing, the temporal and by your grace, eternal blessing of others. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know the pain of being publicly disciplined. Near the end of my freshman year in high school, I was justly expelled for the rest of the school term for offenses that we will not talk about. But instead of being promoted, I was conditioned into 10th grade. 
I had eight weeks to shape up or to ship out. Now, such public discipline was painful for me and my family. <clears throat> but I'm grateful to say the Lord used all this pain to begin to turn my life right side up. Now here in 2 Corinthians 5 through 13, these verses focus on a case of church discipline, a case of church discipline that is causing a great deal of pain for the one disciplined and for the church doing the disciplining. And Paul's concern, the reason he mentions this, his concern over all of this arises from the fact that he is the Lord's authoritative apostle and he is the church's founding pastor and longtime friend, longtime friend. Consider with me just for a moment, and I, I risk losing some of you, but try to stick with me here. C consider with me for just a moment uh, the, the intertwined history between Paul and this church over the past three or four or perhaps maybe even five, more likely three or four years. In the early 50s, Paul plants this church in Corinth, which is located in southern Greece. And he'll remain there for 18 months. And then when he leaves Corinth, he'll travel some 700 miles east to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem, 350 miles north to his home church in Antioch, and then he will walk some 500 miles east, or, or 500 miles west, until he arrives back again in Ephesus. In Ephesus, located on the west coast of the modern land of Turkey. In Ephesus, Paul writes the Corinthians a letter that we don't have. And he receives from them a letter that we don't have. But we know about because that letter was apparently filled with questions which when you read 1 Corinthians, you recognize that Paul is answering a list of questions. And um, he probably uh, writes 1 Corinthians somewhere around 55 AD. Well, a little while later, while he is in, in, in Ephesus, there in Asia Minor, Paul learns that the Corinthians... Um, that they um, have ignored his instructions and they are refusing to acknowledge his apostolic authority. So, Paul leaves Ephesus, crosses the Aegean, 
and shows up in Corinth. He pays them what he calls a painful visit, during which he rebukes them for challenging his apostolic authority and for failing to do as he instructs. He then returns to Ephesus, writes to them what he calls a severe letter, which we don't have, a severe letter, gives it, how would you like to be Titus? Paul writes the severe letter, hands it to Titus and says, you take this to them. You take this to them, you read it to them, and if they have any questions, you answer their questions, okay? Yeah. So, what you have here is during a period of some three or four years, Paul travels widely, several letters are written back and forth, and these are painful and difficult years for Paul in many ways, in more ways than we can talk about this morning. But basically, because of his love for them, for the church at Corinth, he is heartsick over whether they will ever true, uh, will ever prove to be truly obedient to the Lord. And then, as you're told, in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 10, while Paul is still in Ephesus, still in Asia, in Asia Minor, his life is threatened. And so Paul and his companions leave Ephesus, as you read here in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. They leave Ephesus, they travel north 200 miles to Troas. It's one of the most peculiar things to me in all of Scripture because we're told that in Troas... You read this in verse 13. In Troas, even though Paul finds the door open to his proclamation of the gospel, his spirit is not at rest. And he is deeply concerned about the Corinthians and he's expecting Titus to show up any day in Troas, having traveled north from Corinth to Troas, so that Titus can inform him about how the Corinthians have responded to Paul's severe letter. But Titus doesn't show up in Troas. And so Paul, despite telling us that the door was open for the proclamation of the gospel, and of course, I don't know how long Paul stayed there or how effective a ministry he may or may not have had. But we do know he leaves Troas, he heads northwest around the top of the Aegean Sea. And what he's hoping is that as Titus travels north from Corinth, that Paul will meet him somewhere on the road. Somewhere on the road they're going to link up. And so he goes into Macedonia, which is northern Greece, 
And just anticipating this down the road a piece, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, we're finally we're told that they 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 finally meet up. Titus delivers his report, and it's a good report. Paul is comforted by what Titus tells him. And so now at this point is when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, a letter which, by the way, you're told in anticipation in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians is another letter that he hands to Titus and to two other brothers and says, you take this on ahead uh, to Corinth, I'll follow you shortly, and in fact, he does, because we're told in Acts 20 that briefly afterwards, Paul will make a third and final visit to Corinth. That, that Second Corinthians, if you haven't read ahead, here Titus, you take this to them, and oh yeah, by the way, this is telling them we're looking for money. So Paul, here Titus, you take the severe letter, explain it to them. Now you take this letter in which we're going to tell them we need money and you help them understand that, okay? And I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there. Now, I don't know that it worked that way, but if I'm Titus, I'm probably walking away going, why don't you take the letter? I mean, you know, so... But Titus is obedient, he's a better man than me, and he handles this whole situation. So look back now at verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, because in verse 5 you learn that a specific situation in Corinth has proved painful to many. Paul humbly says that the pain is not so much his as it is theirs, and we know that They've caused him pain, but in this particular situation, he's focused on them. And the situation causing all this pain is a matter of church discipline. Someone has been punished by the church. We're not told who or why. Some think it's the one about whom Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, if you're familiar with that passage an individual who was guilty of gross sexual sin, but we're simply not sure who or why Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 2. But what we do know is that someone has been punished for a sin that has brought public disrepute upon the church and the name of the Lord. Now, let's be clear. We all sin. We're all guilty of sin. But the sinner disciplined in 2 Corinthians 2 is guilty of a publicly known sin that brings ill repute upon the Lord and his church, and it therefore requires that the church discipline the offender to protect the name of the Lord, the name of his church, and by God's grace, by God's grace, restores the offender to the fellowship of the Lord and his people. 
Now, we're always uncomfortable sometimes. It seems like we're almost always uncomfortable talking about discipline. Well, you need to know, and, and many of you already do, that here at Covenant Presbyterian Church, we practice church discipline. Such discipline for public sins of ill repute can result in the offender being admonished by the session who represent the church or suspended from the sacraments or even excommunicated from the church. But now this is what I want you to hear. Church discipline is always for the purpose of protecting the name of the Lord, his church, and its goal is always to restore the offender to the Lord and his people. Always. Now, it's interesting. I mean, even back in 1 Corinthians 5, where I told you we're dealing with a man guilty of gross sexual sin, even in that situation, Paul tells the people at Corinth the purpose of that discipline will be to save the offender from the eternal consequences of his sin and restore him back to the Lord and his church. And I'm, I'm, I rejoice to tell you, and some of you know this, that here at CPC we have witnessed the joyful restoration of ones who have been so disciplined. Now, you also need to know in 1 Corinthians, the church fails to discipline the offender, which grieves Paul deeply. But here in 2 Corinthians 10, the offender has been disciplined and now look at verses six and following. The offender has been disciplined and Paul tells the church that has disciplined the offender, he tells them the discipline you have exercised is enough. It's enough. That's enough. And what does that mean? Well, Again, anticipating where we will go in 2 Corinthians, it means in light of what you can read in 2 Corinthians 7 verses 9 and 10, it means that the church has reason to be confident that the offender has experienced godly sorrow for his sins, has confessed has repented, that is, he's turned away from his sinful attitudes and behavior and turned back to Jesus, eager to exercise an obedient faith in his Lord and King. And that's why Paul says, chapter two, verses seven and eight, he says, that's enough. It's enough. And now, he calls upon the church to forgive and comfort the offender so that he will not be overwhelmed by Satan's purposes. 
that he will not be overwhelmed by the excessive sorrow that Satan can bring upon someone who has truly confessed and repented and yet Satan just clouds their mind and they don't feel forgiven. They don't feel as if their sin has been thrown behind the Lord's back. They don't feel like it's been buried in the deepest sea. They, they, they don't believe that it's removed, been removed from them as, as far as the east is from the west. Satan does that. And Paul says, therefore, you as a church, you have to stop Satan from doing that by openly forgiving, comforting, and reaffirming your love for the repentant offender. After I was expelled, I returned home and I met that very day with my father, mother, and pastor. It was a great day. Humiliated, I uh, confessed to them my sin. I was gently, gently, but firmly rebuked, challenged about my professed love for the Lord. And then I was comforted, assured of the love of the Lord's forgiveness and of, their, of the Lord's love and forgiveness and of their love and forgiveness for me. And as I told you, the Lord used that moment in my life to begin the painful and prolonged process of turning my life right side up. And in case you were wondering, I passed my first eight weeks of 10th grade to the satisfaction of my school. And of my father. Of course, I still sin. But now when mindful of my sin, I confess it to the Lord. Um, and I confess to the one that I may have offended. And by God's grace, repent and rest in the assurance of the Lord's forgiveness and love. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul tells them that one reason he wrote his severe letter, a letter, remember, written between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, a letter that we don't have, it was to test them to see if they would obey his apostolic authority. But Paul, in effect, says, yeah, yes, now, now, you there at Corinth, you have justly discipline the offender, but now I instruct you to forgive, comfort, and reaffirm your love for the one who experienced godly sorrow and has therefore confessed, repented, asked the Lord and, yours for, and your forgiveness. And Paul assures them, and I'm not quite sure I understand all this. I, I, if there are sometimes passages of scripture that you read and you go, I, I, I'm not sure I know what that means. Well, you're not alone. You're not alone. I mean, even Peter said, Paul wrote some things that were hard to understand. You know, 
And to Peter, I give a hearty amen. Um, and, and I'm not sure I know what's, what exactly what all this means. But Paul assures them that if there's anything for him to forgive, he's forgiven the offender for their sake before Christ. Now, in my mind, my mind goes to the fact that the authority that Paul exercises and the discipline the church exercised are both in the name of the Lord. But what does Paul mean when he says, I've forgiven them for your sake? Because he wants them to forgive. He's trying to set them an example. I want you to forgive. Anybody here have problems forgiving? Nobody raised a hand. So nobody raised a hand. Oh, we don't do that in a Presbyterian church. I, I, I know, I know. Well, I, I think Paul's trying to encourage them in their forgiveness because Paul is, I mean, look at verse 11 again. Paul's well aware, well aware of Satan's tactics. Paul knows that if people fail to forgive and to comfort and reaffirm their love for the repentant offender, Satan can fill some with the sinful pride of thinking themselves superior to the offender, forgetting that we all sin, even if our sins are not a matter of public record. And now look back at verse six, because furthermore, verse six suggests that while a majority agree to discipline the offender, that would clearly seem to imply that that some in the church thought the offender should not have been disciplined. Well, Paul can use such a minority to disrupt the peace of the church. They may judge themselves, I mean, I've seen this, judge themselves as spiritually superior because they're unwilling to judge anyone because Jesus said, Judge not lest ye be judged. Of course, Jesus also said three or four four verses later, don't throw your pearls before swine. Well, who made that judgment? Where does that judgment come from? There is a basis for discipline. It's not for personal revenge or for a sake of feeling superior, it's for the purpose of showing your love and your desire to see the offender restored to the Lord and to his people. But some people are just uncomfortable. I've seen it many times. They don't yet seem to understand the discipline in many forms is a good thing. I was publicly disciplined. As embarrassing as all that was, I knew discipline at the hands of my father that my school couldn't have touched. Could not have touched and I'm grateful I'm grateful 
I'm grateful. I'm grateful that the school disciplined me. I'm grateful that for all, I know it's painful. I know discipline is always painful. So children, be sure that you can write thank you under that picture of your mom and dad if you know that they love you enough to discipline you. And, and let me just add very quickly. I, I don't get this shot very often. So let me add this very quickly. There's also another form of discipline that should take place between us. I'm grateful for those dear, precious friends who have loved me enough to privately rebuke me. If you don't have friends close enough who love you enough to rebuke you, that's to your loss. That's to your loss. And if you don't think you ever need rebuking, then you're living on another planet. Because we all do. I had a dear, precious friend write me a letter to chastise me for my behavior at my children's sporting events. I, 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 I sometimes disagreed with the ref's call. <laughs> and I, 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 I sometimes expressed with a little bit of vehemence my, my, my objection to the call. Well, my dear precious friend, still my dear precious friend, he wrote me a letter and he told me that it just, he said, you look foolish and your behavior is dishonoring the Lord in front of other people. His words stung, but he was right. He was absolutely right. And by God's grace, it changed me. Referees still make stupid calls. <laughs> but I keep my opinion to myself. By God's grace. Most of the time. <laughs> Discipline is always painful. But by God's grace, its purpose is restorative. It's to restore to us our relationships with one another, to restore to us our relationship with the Lord, and by God's amazing grace, to restore to us the joy and the peace of our salvation. I know, I've been there. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have one another. Thank you that you place around us brothers and sisters 
who love us and by God's grace love us enough to offer a word of discipline when needed, be that private or be it public. Thank you, Lord, for the ways and the means and the peoples through whom you restore us again. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.